What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sense Podcast. My guest today is the one and only John Sebastian. John, good to have you on the podcast. Terrific to be here, Robert. Okay. So, for a minute there, your first solo album with Reprise was John B. Sebastian. What was that all about? Well, I didn't want people to be confused between me and my actual classical virtuoso father, who I I just knew there were occasions, uh, these were more before I was putting out a solo album, where people would see that name and think, oh, gee, Mr. Sebastian is sort of slumming now, isn't he? (laughs) And, And, you know, so that was really the stimulus. And what does the B stand for? Benson. Benson. Yes. If your father was John and you were John, what did they refer to you growing up as? I would be John Benson. John Benson. Yes. Or I'd be JB or Giovannino in Italy because I I have a kind of a checkered past. Uh, And when I was in Italy, I'd be Giovannino. Okay, a couple of questions there. Is the Benson your, Benson your mother's maiden name? Uh, you know, ben, uh, no, no. Uh, the, her uh, maiden name is Bisher, B-I-S-H-I-R. And I was uh, only recently uh, explained to me before my mom passed that she didn't know why my grandfather had that middle name except that there had been a an Ohio senator of that name that uh, she thought maybe the folks were naming me after. I, I really don't know. It's it's a little mysterious. And you mentioned spending time in Italy. What was going on there? Well, my dad uh, had a career that started in the, in the United States. Uh, and uh, as time went on, 
he began to be able to travel uh, and tour. He was a classical harmonica virtuoso. I can only tell you that uh, there's been nobody since, uh, maybe Bonfiglio a little bit, but this guy really had a remarkable uh, sphere of abilities. Uh, and people like Villa Lobos were writing for him. Cherubnin wrote for him. Uh, so this wasn't just a, uh, you know, peg of my heart type harmonica player. So, okay, but I haven't gotten to it, have I? Uh, so, but what would happen is that most summers, as time went on, and my dad started to get a reputation in Europe, that became a primary, uh, a, a, a primary source of income for him, so that he would go to Europe most summers. And his solution for not being a, an uh, absent dad was he would take the family and parked us in this beautiful little red towered villa outside of Fiesole. I mean, if you were going to have an ideal place, it's ridiculous. I should be ashamed of myself at uh, what a good uh, age five to about 11. And so every summer we would go there after my schooling was done for the year. That was the cue, and uh, we would go, and sometimes Dad would go before us, but most of the time, we'd get on the boat and go to Genova. You would go by boat, not by plane. Correct. Wow, as a little kid, you know, good experience, bad experience on the boat? Fantastic experience. All the Italian guys love you. I mean, it's it was... It was too, it was great fun. Uh, yeah, seven days and, you know, the, the, the larcenous quality of the Italians was so evident because uh, I would go up to the first class movie and try to get in and inevitably the uh, the Italian guys that, that were working it would go, okay, via, via, get in there. And and so I had really a full run of the boat. So one of the reasons was that my dad spoke fluent Italian, uh, the kind that you really can't detect as an American. So uh, so we just really had carte blanche on the boat, and really in Italy. And in those, remember, it's 1950 in Italy. Oh my God. <laughs> Everybody looks like Anita Ekberg. <laughs> okay, you're only uh, you know you're less than ten years old, but it's That's also right. but it's also le five years after the Second World War. Correct. So you know we saw movies they were made there in black and white about the aftermath. Did you experience that, or you were just a kid you didn't know? Okay, I was just a kid and didn't know, but my friendships were all with people of uh, lower, uh, how can I say this? They were, a, a, it was a lower class background that I was immersed in. I was hanging out with farmers. I was hanging out with 
the cooks and the cleaning ladies, because that's what children of that era did. So I, I, I did have this, this experience of understanding a, a certain sorrow that I, that I couldn't really, uh, I couldn't define, but I was aware that Paolo and Paola, the two, uh, the, uh, the two farmers, uh, the farmer and his wife were, uh, uh, experiencing hardships. Okay. Did you learn Italian? Fluently. Fluently, just by going every summer. Ogni Sì, proprio parlo italiano, non come un italiano, però sono un pochino americano. Si sente. I have some flatterers who tell me that uh, I'm fairly undetectable as a Florentine, but uh, not everybody. <laughs> okay. So, you know, needless to say, a lot of years have gone by. How do you keep up your Italian? Or once you have it, you can't lose it. Well, it does stay with you, but I do occasionally. I mean, I've been over there for these week and a half visits, not nearly enough, but I would always feel like I was struggling my way up a ladder with missing rungs, and I was trying to get all the way up the sentence, you know? And then did you have the experience of going back years later after you had a certain amount of uh, fame and success and interacting with the same people? Yes, I did manage to uh, go back to um, adjoining the little villa that we were living in is a hotel, uh, the Pensione Benchista. And uh, it's been there forever, and it's all expats, and it's it's just it's a little slice of the 1940s that's just sort of still there. And uh, uh, that experience of 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 being there was it was amazing. Okay, where was your father born? My father was born in Philadelphia. Okay, and how many how many generations is he removed from the old country? Uh, his father was born in Italy, so yeah, we we're all Abruzzesi uh, by background. And how does it become Sebastian, or is that what it was? Okay, here's how it goes. Uh, we we start my father, Giovanni Sebastiano Pugliese. Now, so he's going to Haverford, he's magna cum laude, but they keep calling him Puggles. Now, you know, <laughs> a guy can be patient about that for a while, but after a while you start to go, is it so far off that you couldn't pronounce this? So there was a point, and he tells the story, uh, well, actually, I I had made the inquiry at one point because I saw, uh, you know, uh, uh, his name on a billboard or something. And I said, Dad, you know, how come uh, our name is different than Grandpa? And he said, Son, here, here's what it is. Pugliese is a name that Americans have a lot of trouble with. And uh, so that's... Uh, 
one strike, then I'm a classical harmonica player. That's two more strikes. So at that point, I decided that Pugliese could go because John Sebastian looks real good on a on a marquee, you know? <laughs> what an amazing story. Well, how about your mother? Where, what's her background? Oh, man. And, and this is the one that nobody gets to. I'm very glad because my mom at 16 uh, became an amazing writer for radio. It's it's really, it's a Tina Fey story. It really is. It's the same story where this young woman comes in and just kills it. Uh, she writes funny and she makes up crazy stuff. Uh, you know, there's an Amos and Andy show. So she does Anderson Amy, and it's about stupid white people. Uh, and she does a show, uh, 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 oh, uh, Father is an Idiot was another thing that she did. So she's always punning on existing radio material. But what happened was then she got the job at, at the big, the big station, the big town. She went to Cincinnati. (laughs) 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 So she works there for a while uh, at NBC and NBC finds out about her and they go, Oh, you're going to New York. So at the end of her 16th year, she is, she comes home and goes, so uh, they're going to hire me and I'm going to go to New York. And her father, my grandfather, says, that's wonderful, honey. And, you know, I'm coming right along with you because I'm going to be your roommate. And that's what he did for the next couple of years uh, was sort of zip back and forth between Dayton uh, and, uh, and, and New York. And then eventually uh, the, uh, the grandparents on my mother's side moved to Florida. So that was another wonderful little visit that I could make in the winter, usually. Okay, so how did your parents meet? Well, uh, I'd say that they probably met um, in in New York society, uh, in the life of professional artists. They crossed paths. Um, Mom had a couple of dear friends who met dad and said, oh, you have to meet this guy. And uh, people like uh, Vivian Vance, who were uh, just like blood sisters, uh, Jane and and she, and uh, people like, uh, oh, there were a, f- a few great uh, sculptors and people like Garth Williams, who were, sort of pals with them and I, I somehow or another they all met through those channels okay you say your father was magna cum laude so he was educated man he graduated magna cum laude from haverford so then he goes then he gets a scholarship to the Universita di roma and now uh what at about 20 he's living in rome and 
He's living there with the cats. I mean, you know, Casals and Picasso and, and Garth Williams and all these cool guys who I would later meet. And, you know, it was such a wonderful uh, little mini society that I was dropped into. I mean, if I hadn't done something constructive, it would have been a real mess. Okay, so... Uh- How does one become a harmonica player on that classical level? I mean, where was he trained? So it starts in Philadelphia. Um, He gets a job. uh, Well, he becomes the soloist for... um, the composer of every damn march we we use in the John United Philip S- Sousa? Yes, okay. So dad was a uh, a player in that harmonica orchestra and then he became the soloist. So by 16 he was the main soloist for that band. It was a Philadelphia group. And they toured c- c- quite uh, quite a lot and and quite far and near. Well, you know, in the rock era, most harmonica players are self-taught. Did your father have formal lessons? You know, I, I really don't know some of this because dad was the guy that was giving people formal lessons. You know, we'd have Johnny Paleo over at our house <laughs> and, you know, two or three harmonicats uh, and they were all trying to learn, you know, tongue blocking and, and some of the advanced techniques that my father really had under control. So how did your father feel that you didn't graduate from college? You know, it was a, a great disappointment to him and all the Pugliese's, I, I must say. Yeah, I was fighting an uphill battle for, for respect because as dyslexic as I am, I just could not pass an ancient history course. <laughs> and so, so really, I, I was a poor student, um, but luckily... My dad started to see it somewhere around 18. And my brother, my little brother, always quotes him because he loves the quote because people would say, you know, uh, your, your son has a, uh, a number six record on the billboard charts. And dad would look into the near distance and say, I can't understand it. He always lands on his feet. <laughs> okay so how many kids in the how many kids in the family just two me and my brother mark he's seven years my junior okay you grow up in greenwich village yes sir you were literally there and it started yep. and long before it became it penetrated the rest of society late 50s and early 60s what was it like being a city kid in the village it was so great. I mean, part of it was that this was the this wonderful neighborhood where there's like multi-culty couples and every LGBT un- undeclared person at that point. Uh, they were both also all <laughs> my dad's friends, and 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 so 
uh, we were experiencing, you know, uh, Burl Ives is over at the house one, one evening and he's the one who gets dad talked into the idea of you got to let this songwriter guy from Oklahoma, you got to let him stay with you for a couple of weeks. He's kind of out of sorts. And it turns out to be Woody Guthrie. Uh, you know, this was going on. This was going on pretty regularly. Uh, I remember, and I do remember distinctly, lying in my bed. And remember, it's practically a crib. I, I may have been four or five, and uh, and uh, uh, there's this guy in the other room. <laughs> have you seen that vigilante man? And I'm listening, and I'm going, not not as good as Dad. <laughs> that that was my conclusion. Okay, you know, a lot of kids who grew up in the 50s and 60s, they have sports, et cetera, but you're living in the city. Are you playing any sports? Are you entertaining yourself? What is your passion growing up? Well, uh, you know, the guitar started to be important by about 13 or 14. And then I spent five years where... All summer, I would be at a really great commie summer camp. And then all winter, I would be at conservative old Blair Academy in Blairstown, New Jersey. So I was having this, I mean, it was a great contrast, but it was very difficult because I had very little patience for, you know, I mean, Blair Academy at the time, their their main concern was that I, I cut my hair because when I came from Italy, I had an Italian haircut. That's called a good haircut. <laughs> but no, yeah, I had to go and, you know, be a bu- have butch <laughs> haircuts and that kind of stuff. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're growing up. Are you a member of the group with a million friends? Or are you more of a loner? What kind of kid are you? Yeah, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not the guy with a million friends. But what did start to happen was that it was kind of like a miniature fan base over the five years. Remember, I've got a lot of years at that place. So they had time to like see me bomb and then actually do something good and then play with the fearsome foursome wow uh the the doo-wop group the, f- the fearsome foursome needed a guitar player and i became one even though i was a f- freshman okay wait let's go back a few chapters one what grade do you go to new jersey to blair academy eighth grade eighth grade so before that you're living in the city going to public school Couple of, uh, well, no, uh, Friends Seminary. Okay. And what do you have to say when your parents say you got to go to boarding school? You know, it seemed like a natural transition. My uncle had gone to Blair, uh, uh, and I also was watching my parents' marriage fall apart. And I could see the logic of getting me out of the house. So there was a sort of a, yeah, I could be good to do this. And the other thing was, boy, it could really be good for my parents to be, because I I knew it wasn't going to, you know, it was going to take a dive. But, but, uh, you know, if they could do it with as little screaming as possible, that'd be great. So like that. Okay. So how old were you when your parents got divorced? uh what am i 14 about 14 okay you usually that fucks people up how how was it for you uh i I, you know i I, for one thing in at a time when (laughs) nobody was smart about divorce my parents were kind of smart about divorce uh dad took an apartment up at 67th Street. I'm living on Washington Square West. I can walk up to see him if I have the impulse. And so I must say that I I suffered less than than a lot of folks. Okay, so how old are you when you pick up the guitar? Uh, about, uh, About 12 or 13. Okay, before you go to Blair Academy or when you're at Blair Academy? Slightly before. Yes. Okay. Now I'm of a slightly younger generation where the Beatles were on TV. Everybody picked up the guitar and there was the folk movement before that. So maybe we played with nylon string guitars. What inspired you to play the guitar? Um, that'll be the day by Buddy Holly. <laughs> it's little things, you know, uh, rumble. I heard rumble and I went out of my mind. I said, what are those chords? 
Uh, and uh, in, year, in later years, when I got a chance to talk to uh, Pete Townsend about this, we found that we totally agreed and it had the same exact experience where we heard it one night in the evening on a channel and just stayed on that channel until three or four in the morning on the off chance that it might play again. And it did. Okay, so you were definitely a rock kid. Those are I Link, was. Link Ray, et cetera. You pick up a... Yeah, uh, that's, uh, I, I don't want to make an incomplete impression here because the other thing, remember these same five summers, I'm going to this summer camp where Pete Seeger comes and visits, where all the cool girls know every damn folk song in the world. Uh, I, 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 there's two sisters there and they both know how to Carter pick. So I'm learning folk music there. Uh, the other thing is that the woman that ran the camp quickly put me in a little sugar house and said, your job is to teach the kids folk songs and maybe make up little plays. And that's, that's the thing that I did for five summers. And that really honed my uh, whatever craft I have uh, more than almost anything, I think, to be to, to try to hold eight to fifteen year olds' attention for forty five minutes. Okay. Ever take any guitar lessons? Uh, you know, it, it was no. I guess is the answer because I. Um, I had a friend who had a beautiful sister with a classical guitar who I talked into borrowing for a week. And I started off with an E minor chord. And by the end of the week, I had invented D. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Needless to say, when we first see you on television, you're playing an auto harp. So your father is a musician. This music, did your father teach you the harmonica, the auto harp? Was he too deep into his own stuff? What was going on in the house? You know, I think that part of my father's ethos came from going to school with a tremendous number of lawyers, guys studying law. And he, uh, he explained it years later when he would visit these guys and there'd be their son and the son is already in school to be a lawyer and doesn't seem that motivated, you know? And so he said, I don't want to do that with music or the harmonica or any of that. Uh, you know, you're, you're gonna fly your own, your own ship. You know, it's, it's gonna be, uh, your, your impulse. So, uh, although how, could I not listening to a man rehearse for six to eight hours a day? And that's a real number. Uh, some of these Boccherini concertos that go flying by so fast, you, you have to practice for years to be able to do it. My dad started adapting a technique with Vaseline that horrified the Honer company completely. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is what some of these uh, disciplines demanded. Okay, so your father never taught you how to play harmonica, never gave you any tips? Correct. However, <laughs> he did He did a, a better thing. 
he came home with a sanitary silver acetate. And I put that thing on and I was mystified because I'd never heard the instrument that way. And it actually uh, was a good half a year of trying to figure out. And then I suddenly realized, oh my God, the tonic cord is on the inhale. <laughs> How could I have missed this? So, so then really from then on, a part, part of the, my background at that point is that I start meeting Sonny Terry fairly regularly in these folk clubs, and I'd go in there, and by the second time I went, I'd go, Sonny, and he'd go, is that Johnny's son? So it was very fast, uh, and uh, he and, and Sonny, in many ways, was sort of a conduit into what would become really a focus, which was Sam Hopkins in years later. Okay, let's go back to Blair Academy. You said there were five years there that you were the musician, you're kind of playing in bands. So tell me more about that. Well, uh, there, there, there was a great incentive to play in those bands because those bands would go to dances and dances required women. And there would be, you know, your lone opportunity to uh, actually hold a woman in your arms. And so uh, uh, me, me and uh, one of my roommates caught on to this very fast, and he was a, pian- a piano player or sort of learning, and I was, you know, playing straight eights on the guitar. And so that really, it was really all about that, uh, that that those band uh, things would form. And then there was this even dozen thing. Uh, I mean, so there was this uh, 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 fearsome foursome thing. And that was a, uh, a, a, a doo-wop group, uh, fairly tame, but, but uh, you know, it was the perfect moment because that's when all of those da 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 all of those tunes were on the air and we learned every one. So did it work for you? You were in the band? The girls were there? Oh, yeah. I got kicked out once because of that. Okay, what happened there? Hey, I'm not going to tell you. No, no. I, you know, it was so innocent that it's really, so, it, it's a sorry tale because uh, what happened was uh, I went to a dance. It was a, a younger classman's dance and they had asked me to come and play and I did and I, <laughs> I, I pulled a very nice girl who uh, was very happy to, go out and, and see what the golf course really looked like uh, in the evening. And uh, so we did, and we were caught by a history teacher. And, you know, what's really tragic is I was suspended for two weeks, and that girl was kicked out of her school. Wow. That's, talk about, you know, that difference. Wow, that's sexism. Okay, you graduate from high school, then what? I go to NYU for a year because it's across the park. <laughs> okay. I had no other reason. And, 
And my dad, uh, he took me uh, up there, uh, Washington Square North, and we 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 go up and get to the door. And I say, "Well, oh, this is going to be great, Dad. Come on in, and we'll we'll check in." And he goes, "No, no, no. From this step, you take by yourself, because I can lead a horse to water, but that's all I can do." So, I thought it was pretty real. And uh, I was a bad student for a good three quarters of a year. Uh, And then I think I came back the next year for maybe a couple of weeks before I just see at the same time, there's all this other stuff going on. I'm in Greenwich Village. My God, six blocks away, John D'Angelico is making Archtop guitars. Uh, and a much more modest uh, endeavor is uh, uh, Tom Vinci making uh, classical guitars. At the time, I wanted a classical guitar. I went to this little shop on Broadway and uh, realized that they're all Abruzzesi. So I quickly start speaking Italian with my grandmother's accent, and in an hour or two, I'm sweeping up. So that became the next thing that I did, really, was sweeping up at the shop and sanding down guitars and tuning. They found that I could tune a lot of guitars and in a short amount of time, and so uh, it was a it was completely absorbing. I was meeting some of the great guitarists of the era. Um, I, uh, 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 Remo Palmieri, uh, the guitarist who played for Arthur Godfrey and was the number one call at the NBC Orchestra, uh, a remarkable guitarist. And his brother, Paul Palmieri, who was the if you ever wanted to say, this is why I should be a musician, it was because every week Paul Palmieri would show up with the beautiful Japanese girl. Next week, it's some kind of multi-culty, who knows what girl. And he just had, he was a, uh, uh, what do they call that? A sequential whatever. Uh, but I, I just said, wow, you can have this many girlfriends. <laughs> If you can play guitar well. So so I was watching all of this, and that really was the end of, uh, of NYU. But I had met a key person in David Grisman, who still tells the story of seeing me in the NYU elevator with this uh, uh, 12 harmonicas on a holster arrangement that I'd I'd made at Tandy Leather because uh, I, I realized I needed more than two or three harmonicas. Uh, so there, that uh, that became a, a real a real focus. Okay, so we're in like 62, 63. The folk scene is big. You talk about going to a club. You're working in the guitar shop. Yeah. But what is going on in the culture at that point? Were you going to clubs every night? Were you going occasionally? Were you playing with other musicians? You'd played in groups in high school? Were you trying to form acts? What was happening? I was beginning to haunt Bleecker and McDougal. And it happened for two reasons. One was my own 
uh, desires, but also I had become a mini-me for one Paul Rothschild. Rothschild and I became very tight in the process of making a Fred Neal album. Uh, uh, and and uh, I suddenly was getting work as a studio musician as a result of Rothschild. Wait, 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 wait a little bit slower. You meet Rothschild how, and you get... And how does he realize you're a guitar player? And he kind of says, come to my sessions. You know, a little bit. How does this happen? Okay. Um, I was hanging around with David Grisman a little bit. And uh, at one summer, I came back from summer camp. And my mother is holding the phone as I walk in the door. She says, it's Stefan. <laughs> She says it really bored because Stefan and I are haunting each other's houses all the time, trying to figure out these various finger-picking things. And Stefan gets on the phone and says, so uh, we're, we're forming a jug band, and it's going to rehearse on 14th Street. And, uh, oh, yeah, and you're the harmonica player. And so I say, what is a jug band? And Stefan says, just come to 14th Street and and uh we're gonna we're gonna rehearse and we'll show you. So I go to that rehearsal, and one of the people that's there is Paul Rothschild, who I don't know. But Rothschild and I begin uh, a kind of a we're we're jabbing at each other in a very New York way. You know what this is, of course. And and uh, so, uh, but it's very friendly, and the conversation turns to marijuana, and it is quickly clear that both of us are fans, and uh, and Paul is now trying to make this group of kind of random blues kids into a jug band. His logic being this Jim Queskin jug band thing is taking off and, and there's room for a New York jug band. And, and why don't you guys do it? And uh, all of a sudden we're working Carnegie hall. This was the, <laughs> what the, parenthetically I would say, I go up to 67th Street to visit dad. Oh, yeah, what you doing? And so on, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, trying to work and so on. Said, so, well, well, we do have a couple gigs. Really? Really? Where are you working? Well, uh, we've got a gig in, at Town Hall, and then we play Carnegie. <laughs> I, I, this was another time when my dad was, I think the reaction was, I don't know how he does it. He always lands on his feet. Oh, okay, but whatever. You know, we know you get to Carnegie Hall by practicing, but we also know there's more than luck involved. So Rothschild puts together the band. How does it all come together that you end up playing Carnegie Hall? Well, because we had begun to play together in earnest, and we had a couple of wonderful people in the band. We had David Grisman. We had Maria Muldor. We had Stefan Grossman. Uh, you know, these are folks who, in this little world of, of uh, finger-picking and guitar and acoustic playing in general, uh, it, it was... It was our 
It was becoming our, our home base. Okay, Rothschild was a record producer. So were there, were there recordings of this act? So, yes. So what happened was uh, Rothschild uh, puts us into the studio and we record uh, an Even Doesn't Jug Band album. Uh, which was nicely received. You know, remember, the scale for success is so s- small. If you sell more records than Billy Fayer, you're, you're really rocking. So, uh, so that was uh, the process of making the record, I think, is what tightened us up to where we could play some actual venues. And for a short time, we were managed by Israel Young. Izzy Young's Folklore Center was the Greenwich Village uh, home uh, of uh, of this dawning folk music uh, uh, obsession. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So, I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How does it work economically? Are you making any money at the guitar store? Are you still living at home? How does it add up? Okay. Uh, A recording session is $51. I can get an apartment for less than that at that moment in time because I speak Italian. And I remember I'm living two blocks from the center of Little Italy and I quickly realized that so many uh, Italian widows 
are in control of these apartments. They're, you know, Pops has passed and the, it, it's uh, her thing. And I would go to these various addresses and I would listen as the woman spoke first. And if I could catch the accent, I would imitate that accent because I had spent a winter in, in Rome. So I, I knew how to turn it into a little more guttural Italian. I knew how to do Abruzzese from my grandparents. So you get the idea. I was being, I was able to get apartments for very cheap because I would do whatever the lady wanted me to do. And she could explain stuff to me that she couldn't explain in English. So I, 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 these things were tremendous uh, advantages. Uh, and so the other thing is uh, that the answer for the 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 even dozen jug band was no no money at all <laughs> my uh, the entire thing really was uh th these uh recording sessions and and that was what was uh, keeping me uh able to be uh, a little bit independent from my parents now remember independent like you're 12 blocks away wow <laughs> you know? and stop by to do your laundry get a meal oh exactly exactly so what happens after carnegie hall what's your next move well uh i had been doing these various sessions and uh i start to wow this is hard to encapsulate all right my father got a, uh, a television show, a Sunday afternoon television show. It's sort of before there was really uh, 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 public uh, television, but it's very much that flavor. And there was a show called Robert Herridge Presents. And uh, this show uh, engaged my dad to play on this show. And I get there. And the people doing the show, there's an, an Englishman uh, reciting Shakespeare. There's Lightning Hopkins. Wow. There's my father. And there's a, a girl that I have met before. She's barefoot. She's about 17. And when she opens her mouth, you cannot believe what's coming out. And, of course, it's Joan Bias. Well, I watched this entire afternoon unfold. And to me, the thing that was most impressive, I mean, Joan w w is in of herself just really impressive because she really has control of, of her guitar now and 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 plus this remarkable voice. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really one of the coolest women I've ever run into. And then Lightning Sam gets on and he starts tapping his foot. And all of a sudden he's singing something about, did you keep on rubbing it? And she starts laughing. And I go, Wow. You can make this woman laugh because <laughs> she's so serious. 
and you, you know it's a big surprise and and so uh, uh, uh i i was so impressed with lightning sam so the 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 television show ends and i'm standing there and dad is talking to lightning sam sam likes dad cuz you know it's like yeah this guy does something weird and unconventional and he's kind of on my side and so they they're talking and uh uh, while they're talking, I walk up to Lightning's guitar case, and I think to myself, as a 50% chat, I won't get hit. So I reach down, and I pick up the case, and Lightning turns to me, and I say, Mr. Hopkins, I know the subway system, and I can get us downtown to within a block of the club that you're going to play. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, we, we, and, and if you need a spot, uh, we live four blocks from there. So Sam is, is I suddenly become like a lead boy for somebody that isn't blind because Sam, of course, understands the value of having a little white kid to, <laughs> I don't know, uh, talk to the the club owner or whatever. And, and so he likes that. So I become a regular. I'm carrying his guitar most of the time. And then me and a, a Blair roommate get a little apartment over on the extreme east side, which we pretty much turn over to Lightning Sam because there's only one bedroom. And we go, I ain't going in that bedroom. No, if Sam's here, we're going to sleep on the couches. And that's exactly what we did. And uh, we get up in the morning and get Sam his uh, two eggs and a jelly glass full of gin and uh, be ready for the day. And that was a remarkable period. And Sam would sing at night or he would just rap. It was essentially rap that was happening and it all rhymed and we would go how does he do this you know it was a real miracle to see it uh, happen in front of you but uh so i take sam down to the club pretty pretty frequently one day when i take lightning sam down to do his uh gig there's an opening act uh called valentine pringle and valentine is a protege of Harry Belafonte's. And he is trying to get with this uh, kind of a folk program because he's a guy from Washington. He's an enormous baritone singer. I mean, he's his voice is marvelous. But, uh, you know, I think his main experience had been uh, in... Uh, in uh, in in musicals and plays and things. So uh, Harry Belafonte starts coaching him. And so all of a sudden he knows a whole bunch of chain gang songs and, and he's got a whole act. And uh, I, I watch this act and I start to watch it pretty regularly because I'm bringing Sam in. So then on this particular evening, he gets up there and he's got a different accompanist. Now, I happen to know that this guy, uh, his name is John Pankin. He uh, 
sometimes masquerades as one sastre or one somebody and pretends to be a flamenco guitarist, which I don't care about that. But when he plays with Valentine, he makes a few crucial mistakes. And the big one being he starts the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which is Valentine's killer. You are not going to be able to survive. And he starts it in the wrong key. And then there was another thing where he started a tempo completely wrong. So, I, and, and this is the only time, Robert, that I've ever done anything like this. I went backstage, attend to Lightning, say hi to Valentine, and say, you know, Val, if I was your guitarist, I wouldn't be starting Battlefield of the Republic in the wrong key. And if you, uh, you know, I, I just, I did the list of the mistakes the guy had made. So, <laughs> Valentine is trying to assess this, who is this kid, you know? And so, he then actually moves over to the other dressing room and Lightning's reading the paper. And he says, uh, Mr. Hopkins, uh, I just uh, interested in this uh, young man, uh, a guitar player. Uh, do you know... Uh, do you know how, how he plays? Lightning looks up from his newspaper and goes, oh, he's bad. He's bad. That, and then he went back to the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so Val is left going, is that bad good? he's trying to assess what he's hearing and uh well what did happen was within a day or two i was his accompanist now this is a long way around but i'm glad we have a lot of time because this is where my professional life really begins because i get a gig with valentine out of town. Unbelievable. We go to Washington, D.C., and we play a place called The Shadows. And uh, The Shadows, uh, he goes out there, and he's a pretty good opening act. And then on come the big three. And the big three is Cass Elliott, uh, James, not Jimi Hendrix, and Tim Rose, the guy that wrote... Uh, hey, Joe? Yeah. Hey, Joe. Right. Yeah. So, this group is, you know, a real conventional commercial folk group, and they're playing for pretty much Washington upper crust. Uh, this is a fancy club. Uh, it isn't really folky, you know? And... Uh, but as we finish the show, and uh, uh, I think I was coming downstairs as Cass was coming up, and she's doing Valentine's act, all the slave songs. And it's, it's so uh, uh, un-PC that I just, I, I just was, I was laughing 
for the next 20 minutes. Well, that was all that Cass needed. And so she starts engaging me. We become friends. By the end of the week, she's saying, oh, man, you got to meet my pal Denny and and you got to meet Zolly. Uh, We got to hook you up. And so I go back to New York and I'm doing, you know, I actually got a gig in Toronto with Valentine. A couple of other things happened. Then I get a call from Cass. She says, you know, uh, this thing is working out. We've actually got, uh, you know, like a nice uh, hotel rooms for each one of us and everything. And and uh, we're thinking about changing our thing. Well, a, a little while later, and I, I really can't go into too much detail because we'll be here all night, but essentially a friendship that forms both in Washington and at the Albert Hotel uh, becomes uh, a new focus for Cass. And then she invites me to come to Washington to uh, accompany this new group, the Mugwumps. Okay. Oh, and would you please bring a kilo of pot? I say, thank you, I will. And so uh, that's what I did. And uh, we had about two weeks of gigs uh, at this same club, at the end of which I get called by the assistant manager who says, I'm afraid that, uh, you know, our the manager uh, – doesn't want you to continue with the group. Uh, I said, no, I, I certainly could understand. He says, because, you know, you're a, you're a bad influence on, on Yanovsky. <laughs> and I said, I, I know I am. He says, like every time you play something, Yanovsky echoes it on the, across the stage. And, you know, we want to stick to these arrangements. Well, of course, this was exactly what was wrong with this group, was that it had an arranger, and it had musicians to play with it, and it had people like Timmy Harden and Freddie Neal and even me uh, writing songs that they were doing. So uh, uh, it, 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 it was this, uh, it was a dinosaur. And it would eventually die when it tried to play a real rock and roll club. Uh, they came to New York. They tried to play the Peppermint Lounge. <laughs> People didn't even turn around. I mean, you know, this is followed by Joey D and the Starlighter. You can imagine. So they that was sort of the end of that group. But uh, as a direct result, me and Yanovsky start palling around in New York City. Uh, and we're all living at the Albert Hotel, and so is Cass, and so is Denny. And uh, we're all trying to figure out what's going to happen next. I remember we were thinking, gee, now Cass is going to, she's going to find, you know, a solo career. But we're worried about Denny, you know, because right. <laughs> Denny would make more money than me and Saul put together. So, uh, so it was a wonderful, close bond that we all had. Uh, and eventually, Zal and I start to concentrate along with 
an important uh, an important person in this equation is Eric Jacobson, the uh, the producer for the Spoonful, who uh, really had a very clear vision of what the Spoonful could be. It was it was quite remarkable. I mean, he he really had an idea, and m- my ideas ran similarly enough that that we were suddenly making toy records uh and that was what we were calling them uh because there one would be a uh a, a like a surf record and another would be uh lady godiva got a 38 ford now powered by a chrysler that's stroked and bored now and you know all these funny things that they weren't new york city <laughs> Norwegian American guy, you know, it was a, this wonderful, funny uh, 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 attempt to get into pop music somehow, and uh, I think uh, Eric saw what I saw, which was me and Yanovsky were starting to be uh, joined at the hip uh, because we have, you know, enough ideas that are similar, and uh, after a little bit. Uh, we find out that a guitarist that worked in an adjacent band had a younger brother who was coming back from a motorcycle trip in Europe. And I remember me and Yanovsky kind of looked at each other going, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, let's see what this guy's like. Well, of course, Steve Boone shows up and he looks like Fritz Richmond, who was one of our heroes, the jug and wash tub player for the Queskin Jug Band. And, uh, but also he's a real bass player. He isn't a folky guitar player attempting to get around on a fender. And so that really made a big difference. And it wasn't very long before uh, we had uh, Joe Butler, who was also had worked with Steve before. So it, it, it didn't require too much jostling to get this love and spoonful thing going. Okay. How many bites? You, you got the four members together. You're making the toy records. When do you make a real record? And how do you get a record deal, et cetera? Well, we got turned down by every record company in New York City. Robert, that's a lot of companies. And we really did go to everybody. And it was only after we hooked up with these guys that were essentially mainly concerned with ripping off our publishing uh and they said oh well we'll be a record company uh yes it'll be uh yeah stallion records that'll be it well that lasted about a week and a half and they connect up with the guys down the hallway you know this is when the record business was like this and the guys down the hallway are Artie rip and uh kama sutra and kama sutra is the only record uh, the only company that genuinely went nuts uh you know most of these guys have like a voice of god speaker under their desk so when they're demoing stuff it's remarkable and i remember when they start playing our records uh, 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 on this system, I go, my god we're giants (laughs) (laughs) so so uh really that became our record company uh, really to our uh, 
our disservice because we had been offered uh, uh, Electra because, you know, as I said, I had been Paul Rothschild's mini-me. And part of what that involved was going up to Electra Records uh, almost every night. Uh, and as we began to work together and he began to mix the first Fred Neal and Vince Martin record, this was, it was just increasing the, the amount of time I was spending at Electra Records. But as it turned out, when Jack Holtzman offered us, we said, no, no, these, this is a folk label. This is Theo Bikel. I mean, come on. Uh, we're we're trying to get into the the dirty business. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we even used the term, you know, that like, no, no, we're not fake pop. We, we're we want to be pop music, you know. So that was uh, that okay. Was, so let's let's stop here for a second. Yeah, the the songs and you wrote some big ones. Yeah, who owned them then? Then and who owns them now? Okay, uh, I still own them, and BMG owns them, and uh, they publish, and I write, and that—that's okay. Let's talk about the spring. You make this deal with Stallion Records. <laughs> yeah. When you write these hits, who owns the publishing then? At, at that point, uh, it was uh, Koppelman and Rubin. Okay. How did you ultimately get full ownership? I don't know. <laughs> well, was it part of a re the reversion a handful of years ago? Or did some transaction happen decades ago? So, boy, I, I, I was running too fast to be paying any attention to the, uh, to the, uh, the, the, the mechanics of the business deals. And I have suffered proportionately for that mistake. But yes, I, I, I really, uh, all of this stuff, we didn't, and, and our, our manager has since said, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, he's so apologetic because this Bob Cavallo, he becomes the president of Warner Brothers and Walt Disney Records and all of this stuff. And, and he, I still talk to him uh, frequently. And he, his first thing is always Johnny. How could I be so stupid as to not understand what I didn't understand back then? Uh, uh, it, I'm, I'm very touched by his reaction. And in fact, I can't say that I was unhappy with any step of that process because what was happening was what we wanted. We were becoming... Uh, a rock and roll group that people knew. Okay, some of these hits are in excess of, most of them are in excess of 50 years old. Have they sustained you over the 50 years? Uh, strangely enough, the, uh, well, I'd have to say that the record that, uh, for the Spoonful, that was the most effective, of course, was Summer in the City. And that certainly did uh, very good things for me. My brother, and Steve Boone, because all three of us contributed to the composing of Summer in the City. But the big one, 
Who could have predicted that a little television theme that I got involved in when I was wildly unpopular in 1976 would be, it's like, that's the one right now. And of course, I, unfortunately, I owe part of this to COVID. Uh, <laughs> you never know how things are going to play out. Okay, just to put a cap on it, the original songs you ended up owning 100% of. And then you sold part to BMG or you still own them or you sold all of it? So I eventually sold all of it to BMG. And did you keep your writer's share or you, they yes. gave you a check? Okay. So you sold the publishing, but you still you still get the writer's share. Okay. Yes. Did you ever get a ro- record royalty? Do you still get record royalties? You know, I I probably do somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I do have an accountant who he kind of supervises this stuff, but uh it it it's a uh it's a quantity that's been halved so many times by our uh, modern way of listening to music that it's almost nothing. Well, that's why I mentioned and if it's not nothing they say you're in the hole. So you make this deal with Kama Sutra Tell me about making the record and making the hit. Well, uh, uh, we had made Do You Believe in Magic going into a, uh, a studio independently, and Eric Jacobson f- footed the bill. And that was the record that got turned down all over. And every time it got turned down, Yanofsky and I would go, you know, you'd think we'd be discouraged. we go. Of course they didn't understand. They're, they're, they're looking for Fabian. They're, they're not going to find it in us. And so it was a kind of a bizarre twist that we saw every turn down as, yeah, we are that cool. We're just that cool. So you make a deal with Kama Sutra. What's the first thing? You make an album or they put out Do You Believe in Magic? I think we were on about making the album. Uh, and I don't remember whether magic got out. I think magic got out before the, do you believe in magic album? I believe this is summer 65. How long after they put it out, does it become such a big smash? Uh, it, it didn't take long. Uh, it was amazing once it got out there, uh, really how fast it did happen. Um, and, and also it didn't exactly happen on the East coast for us. Uh, we sort of had to go play the trip and the tiger tail. Uh, those are all the same club. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, find a, a little success with the California disc jockeys. They were probably more enthusiastic about it. I mean, except for Cousin Brucey, who's been our ally forever. Uh, it was really, it was, it was like that. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com okay so it becomes a hit what's it like for you when you have a hit and all of a sudden you're playing these clubs but ultimately there's television there's recognition you hear the song on the radio what was your internal experience Hmm. well of course it was joyous when we actually landed in California and we turn on the radio in the rent-a-car and we hear uh, California girls followed by Do You Believe in Magic? At which point, Yanofsky starts hitting me <laughs> all over my body. <laughs> We're both in the back seat, and then we start hitting each other and then... Steve and Joe start hitting us. And so all four, we have to pull over so that we can more thoroughly hit each other. (laughs) And and so it was absolutely a wonderful moment. And uh, uh, nothing's going to compare to that. Okay. You have the hit. Right. Even at that era following up the hit is very very difficult and very important and there was a thing that the spoonful was really driven to pursue and that was we want to sound like a different band every single because this same old way of having it be the same thing for three or four singles that that era is gone now and so we have to make sure that it, it sounds different. And 
I probably couldn't have come up with You Didn't Have to Be So Nice by myself. That was uh, a, a fragment that Steve Boone <laughs> brought in one evening. We're playing a, a kind of a topless club, and uh, and he shows up in my dressing room, uh, in my in my. Uh, uh, in my uh, hotel room with this fragment. And that became uh, our second single. And uh, things really did go that way. You know, I, I forget what the sequence is, but Daydream and Make Up Your Mind are right in there. And, and uh, these are all different enough that, that, or at least we think, you know, the funny thing was, we're saying, hey, man, they'll never guess. It's like, this is so different. Jeez, man, you didn't even play your guitar. You played my guitar for that. Uh, they'll never guess. And then it goes on the air and the DJ goes, well, here's another example of that great spoonful sound. And we go, damn it. <laughs> okay, what was driving you at this point? You talked about earlier it was girls. Then you have the excitement of meeting and playing with Zal. Needless to say, you make it. Their money comes in. What was pushing you forward? Well, some of it was just the fact that we were such underdogs. Even though we had the approval of several of our English contemporaries, Rolling Stone, for one, for one was not on the case for us. Uh, and... Uh, so we had to kind of inch our way up. And uh, I think that that was its own, its own driver. Yes, but you have hit after hit after hit in an era where there's still a ton of one-hit wonders. I mean, at some point, you must have felt good about what you were doing, success-wise. No, no, I certainly, oh, I was feeling uh, very good about it. No, no doubt about it. Uh, I probably got a real swelled head right around then. But the only thing was that you had to keep at it. Uh, you couldn't stop and think. Um, I mean, I'm very glad that I had the partners that I had. Somebody like Yanofsky, who would crack up when I wrote Nashville Cats and think that uh, Pow, the thing I wrote for Woody Allen, was the funniest thing in the world. Uh, you know, that was also driving me, the approval of Yanofsky, who was it really important to me. Okay. You have all these hits in the 60s, and you have Welcome Back, Cotter, in the 70s. It dries up. Why were there hits? Needless to say, music is constantly evolving, and you had an incredible success. But was it you were working with those specific partners, or the sound changed, or somehow you couldn't do it anymore? Well, I had a wonderful time working with those partners right up until it was going to be impossible because after Zali got busted, he started uh, drinking a lot, a lot more. And that was really disappointing. And, uh, you know, uh, also we, we were starting to have our own separate lives. And, and uh, you know, obviously Stephen was entering into a kind of a dark period where he wasn't really available. Uh, and uh, so 
there was a point when it was obvious to me that, and I was afraid to do this for the longest time because I believed that people could not just transition from a group and suddenly be a solo artist. Uh, that that seemed like a real far stretch. Well, as I say, the hits dried up. Do you believe if you were still in the band, the hits would have continued or everything runs its course? I, I think it probably, uh, I'd go for the everything runs its course theory because, uh, again, uh, surrounded by uh, all of that approval and surrounded by a good band that that had provided uh, a tremendous amount of satisfaction. But it was also obvious now that you know, the grooves were different. They were more complicated grooves that our rhythm section didn't really have facility with. Uh, uh, and, and they're really, uh, I was busy enough <laughs> because I started recording with Paul Rothschild uh, to make a, a solo album. Okay, before you get there, I vividly remember you being on TV playing that auto harp. We were talking about it in high school the next day. What was it like being on Ed Sullivan? I mean, this is when those shows had reached. Nothing has that reach today. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was remarkable. And we were all ready to diss it because we're Greenwich Village puppies and we want we just want to be counterculture every chance we get and so we're going oh you know ed you know he doesn't have any idea what we're about oh, it's great that we're on the show we'll play the thing and uh like that ed sullivan comes out and does the introduction for the love and spoonful in which he pretty much says this is the American answer to the English invasion. And here they are, and they write their own songs, and they do their own shit. And, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but we we were standing there about to play. And I, I mean, I, I don't know whether my mouth was still wide open when the cameras came on us, but I was still recovering from, oh, man, we're going to have to, we're going to have to reassess our, our uh, uh, assessment of of Ed, you know, and he persisted every time we'd come on. He'd he'd be that same guy. Um, I heard that, that later from uh, Denny Doherty that he seemed like he wasn't as able when the mamas and papas played it, but boy, when the spoonful played it, he was right on top of it. So what is it like being on national television then walking on the street? Well, you know, don't think you're going to get recognized right away. Because uh, for one thing, Yanofsky's going to get recognized several hours before you are noticed. And and so I'm I'm used to that because Ali's he's got the 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 Borsalino hat and the whole rig, and you know, he's obviously a rock star. Remember again, it's it's Greenwich Village. Everybody's being cool, so it isn't the same thing as returning to your high school and coming in with a hit record. You know, where all of a sudden the cheerleader likes you. You know, it, it, it was different. 
Okay, and in that era, because shortly thereafter, there's the rock star lifestyle. Are you partaking of the drugs, the women? What is your life like? I got lucky a few times, but I was not an abusive rock star. Uh, and uh, so, like I say, uh, it was it was not going to be uh, my uh, incentive uh, to try to uh, engage a underage girl or something uh luckily we had our girlfriends by that time and they were appropriate ages uh uh but uh you know as time went on and a few years went by then those temptations became a little stronger uh the girls became impossibly good looking and uh uh so so yeah to that extent uh, like I say, but it was it was good luck. It wasn't force. Uh, you know, uh, we, uh, you got to make the distinction between that period and you know what would you know? I don't know Led Zepp. Uh, uh, you know that era where girls were like Kleenex and and life was beautiful and the champagne was flowing. We. We didn't really get there. We we were too busy doing gigs. Uh, sometime for your own amusement, uh, I'll send you the Love and Spoonfuls schedule. It was documented by an Englishman who's a nut for the spoonful. And I look at that, and it's unbelievable how many gigs we did. You know, hey, it still doesn't compare with Fats Domino, but it was pretty good for some white guys. Okay, let me talk about a couple of my favorite spoonful tracks. Give me the backstory. Six o'clock. Six o'clock came about because I was mourning the loss of a beautiful red-headed girlfriend. The the tune itself uh, somehow evolved from uh, hammering on a new instrument from Honer called the clavinet uh and uh, there are people <laughs> on websites still uh trying to decide whether six o'clock is the first use of the electric harpsichord uh which uh we we have no idea but uh that was that was the way that that uh, uh emerged now remember we're in transition now zolly uh, will occasionally visit our sessions. It's not like, you know, we, this is the other thing that was so different for, with our band, you know. We took 8 by 10 glossies with the new band member, but if you look closely at the glossy and you looked in the trees behind where we were standing, you'd see Zolly looking forlorn and, and sad. And, uh, you know, it was, I, it was, Yanovsky all the way, but I, I, I mean, in some ways, it, it, it separated us from ever being that perfect, I don't know, uh, you know, money-making band that uh, does no wrong. Darling, be home soon. It came about because I was listening to a lot of songs on the radio that went, 
oh, my honey, I love you so much, and now I have to go on the road, and it's so hard, and it makes me so unhappy. And I was going, wait a minute. And maybe this is partially having a musician as a father. I said, well, this you got this wrong. When you get this going, uh, <laughs> that's that's what you want to have happen. Keep it going. Uh, and uh, so I thought maybe it would be, I could sort of write that song, only what if I took it from the other partner's side? What if, you know, the song was really being sung by whoever stays at home? Okay, what do you think when you heard Joe Cocker's version? I loved it. I went nuts. Uh, and in fact, I, I would see him occasionally because we'd get paired in these various uh, sorry-ass Woodstock imitation shows in, in, in subsequent years. But I, I loved that man. And, and he and I spent a considerable time in, in, in dressing rooms not talking because <laughs> he was glad to have somebody that didn't want to talk to him. And I was glad to provide that. He was a delightful guy. Okay. I have to ask about Summer in the City. Yeah. It was an iconic record. Came out during the summer, the late spring. It had that sound. How was that created and what is it? That's a staple that has never gone away. So tell me about your experience there. Well, the song really began with Mark Sebastian, my younger brother, uh, who had... Uh, come up with an idea of, uh, you know, summer in the city. Uh, you know it's going to get hot. The shadows of the buildings will be the only sh shade you spot. But at night, it's a different world. Go I said, whoa, 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 what's that? And uh, what are those chords? And my brother showed them to me, and I said, man, that is a fabulous chorus. And I it made me want to create tension because it was such a good release. It goes to the subdominant chord, then it goes to the subdominant chord of that, and it's like a double, whoa, you don't know where you are for a minute. And 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 to me, that that had this wonderful quality of release that it made me want to uh, increase the tension. In the beginning, so uh, I in, in, instead of uh, what Mark had written on that beginning, I started. I started with an idea. I said I wanted to have tension. I wanted to be like Night on Bald Mountain. Okay, one of the things that scared the living pee out of me as a kid was Night on Bald Mountain, and. To me, that thing in the beginning where you, you hear the strings come in very quietly at first. And, you know, that, that uh, remarkable uh, piece of, of uh, writing. And so I, I, I want to imitate that somehow. And that was all it was was, bottom. you know, I don't know. <laughs> kind of underachieving there, but that was the goal. And that was you or the producer? That was me. 
Okay, just jumping forward, one song from your solo oh, career. Oh, 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 wait now, but but there is there is production detail here worth mentioning, which was that again, it's Yanovsky starts the trouble. He goes, I don't want the drums to sound like drums. I want it to sound like a garbage can falling down an eight-story stairwell, metal stairwell. So we're working with Roy Haley for the first time. Uh, he's a guy uh, in a white lab coat. You got to remember the era. And once Zolly says the thing about the stairwell, he goes, well, you know, we have an eight-story metal stairwell. <laughs> uh, really? Well, in no time, we are pushing a voice of the theater speaker on, onto the ground floor of this stairwell, uh, taking a microphone up eight floors, and it's recording this enormous echo of the of the snare. But of course, its decay is way too long. So Roy ends up wowing the capstan that controls that echo, so that it'll go and then disappear. Well, of course, you know that. That same stairwell was then used twice more for the boxer and for Bridge Over Troubled Water. It's that stairwell. Wow. You ever tire, <laughs> of, you ever tire of hearing Summer in the City? No, really not. <laughs> okay, I want to mention one other song that not everybody knows, but it's a big favorite of mine. It's off your Tarzana Kid album, but that's not where I discovered it. Valerie Carter does a great version of Face of Appalachia. Oh, she kills it. And of course, that song, your Tarzana King is now available. Tarzana Kid is available online. Tell me the backstory on that record. Well, um, I had become friends with Lowell George. And we found each other uh, very amusing. Uh, and we'd started to spend a lot of time together. And then we started to just call each other with, hey, listen to this kind of phone calls. Well, one day, Lowell calls me up and says, hey, listen to this. And what I hear is, uh, it's an acoustic guitar, but it's so smeared with compression that it almost doesn't sound like uh, th that instrument. Well, I say, man, that is so cool. That sounds like, I don't know, like the face of Appalachia or something. And he goes, that, yeah, that, do that. Yeah, write that. Uh, so... I started working on it, and uh, it took me the whole summer, Robert. Uh, it's the only song that took me a long time. Uh, and it really, uh, it, it, I just kept working on it all summer. It's a song, as you can tell, about my grandfather and uh, how he had dreamed of making this trip with me of walking the Appalachian Trail. And uh, so it was a combination of the nostalgia of the, the contrast between my background, you know, being born in blocks of buildings and, and his vision that he wanted me to see of the coal trains wailing, banjos frailing and all of that stuff. 
So, so that really, that was it. And I would have to mention that Lowell George and Ry Cooter both played on that record. So you couldn't get, you couldn't get slidier. That's for sure. Okay. You end up working on Francis Ford Coppola's first movie. You're a yeah. big boy now. How does that come together? You know, uh, it was uh, fairly, fairly mechanical in that my manager, Bob Cavallo, knew uh, uh, the, the team that was making that movie. And somehow or another, I, I really don't know how Coppola came up with our name as the guys that should do the movie. But uh, we got the call that, you know, go over to Pathé Labs or something and, and talk to this guy. So we go over there. And, you know, we don't know from Francis Coppola. Nobody does. But one thing was obvious. This guy's, he's got this New York Italian thing that I, I'm immediately drawn in by this guy. Uh, and, and he has a wonderful, funny way of presenting stuff. And uh, there were things that he would say like, okay, so I need, I need a song for this, uh, this couple, and they're there. It's a it's a kind of a a strange pairing now, and they're going to be a couple though soon. And uh, I'm going to play a song that's uh, sort of like the vibe I want. And he plays Monday Monday. Well, all I took from Monday Monday was the tempo, but. But it was an obvious, oh, yeah, I could see how this kind of a mood would be good. Uh, other things like he'd say, okay, now I need a song for Amy, the, the girl, and she's the good girl. But, you know, John, she's not quite as attractive as my bad girl. So I need a song to kind of kind of inflate her a little bit and make her more important. So I, I write a tune called Amy's Theme. And uh, as soon as he hears it, he goes, oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm going to do a thing here. Uh, so, you know, when uh, the the guy is wandering around New York City by himself, now we've heard Amy's theme with Amy in the picture. But now I'm going to use that theme with her out of the picture. It's going to be just him. And you know what the audience is going to be thinking? And all of us got to go, no, we don't know. He says, they're going to be saying, he's thinking about that girl. And I go, wow, <laughs> you know, this is, uh, you know, writing for movies. And I did it by accident. So it was, th that was the experience. It was really informative. I, I learned so much and just disappointed he never called again. <laughs> what do you think when The Godfather came out? I mean, come on, I'm a, I could write you an Italian. No, no, he's got his dad. The dad kills it. Yeah, you're not going to improve on on Mr. Coppola, I'm afraid. Okay, of course, you, then you get 
huge exposure a year after it happens. You know, in August of 69 is Woodstock, gets a lot of press, not that it's focused on you. Then there's the triple album set. And then there is the movie. It becomes a phenomenon. One other thing we know is a lot of the stuff on the original three record set wasn't actually recorded at Woodstock. So <laughs> why did you go to Woodstock? What was up with the tie-dye? Tell us your experience and then the aftermath of having all that visibility. Okay. So by this time, um, I, I have divorced my first wife and moved out to California in a kind of a, I don't know what I'm doing, kind of a way. And and who but Paul Rothschild says, man, you got to be out here. Look, all of your brothers, they've all moved from Greenwich Village, and they're all out here. And this whole sensitive singer-songwriter thing, you can dive right in here. So come on out. You know, that that was kind of the, 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 uh, the way it, it, it began. I moved to California, but while I'm out there, uh, I stay at the home of a guy named Cyrus Farrier, who was in the modern folk quartet. And one of the things I learned there from a woman named Annie Thomas is tie-dyeing. I, I, you know, it starts with underwear and socks and things, but after a while I go, I'm going to actually buy a white Levi jacket and actually have it be purposed to be a, a jacket that has all these colors on it. So, uh, you know, between uh, tying and sewing and various things, I get this thing and it takes, it takes weeks because I'm, I'm dipping into these various buckets and the buckets have to be hot. So there's a time limit. Uh, and so all of this is part of the process. Okay. But then I get the jacket and, uh, again, Rothschild is saying, you know, I can't do this, but this Woodstock festival thing, it's, it's sounding like it could really be something cool. So maybe, you know, if you can make it there, you ought to try to make it. Well, as it turned out, I was on the East Coast in that general time. And so I made my way to the Albany Airport. Um, and I'm standing in the Albany Airport looking out the picture window. <laughs> another era of airports. And I see a guy loading a helicopter. And I look closely, and it's Walter Gundy the original, the Love and Spoonful's first roadie. And so between gesturing and so on, I get his attention. He points to a staircase that I can come down on the tarmac with. So I do that. I go down on the tarmac. He says, you're trying to get to Woodstock. I go, yeah. He goes, get in the helicopter. It's the only way you're going to get there. Uh, I'm roadieing for the Incredible String Band. So uh, I, that's where I'm going. Okay, so that's how that's how the trip began. And me in a helicopter, I see that same view over the the site that is so famous in the movie where there's there's no ground. You just see sleeping bags and tents and and Volkswagen buses and so on. So 
I, I pretty much, I, I just showed up and, uh, there were things that were that were going on that made it easier. One of them was that there was a yellow Volkswagen bus tent right in front of the stage. Well, as it turns out, I had been living in a yellow Volkswagen bus tent in Los Angeles uh, because that was what was available to me at the uh, at my friend's house. Remember, there's very little security or anything you can go where you want to go so i i circled the entire site with uh with david brown wonderful bass player for the uh, santana and uh uh by the next day i'm on stage uh fairly frequently and at a certain point it begins to rain and i'm standing there with the promoters and and Chip Monk, and we're sort of talking. And uh, Michael says, uh, you know, uh, what we need is a guy to hold them for long enough for us to sweep the stage because we, we can't put electric instruments, so we can't put any electric band on. Uh so we got to have a guy who can hold them, you know, maybe with some good songs. And I'm, I'm staring out at the audience at this moment and I'm shaking my head. Yeah, that, that's, that's really, that's what we need. And uh, then I realized that they're looking at me and I say, fellas, I, I didn't bring, I may have a thumb pick. I didn't bring any instruments or I didn't, I'm not prepared to play. And they say, well, you actually have a couple of minutes to go find a guitar. And so I end up down in the sort of underground of that uh, hastily assembled stage. And who's down there uh, relaxing but Timmy Harden, who had been a frequent, uh, you know, I played with Timmy a lot in, in, uh, in Greenwich Village. And so I said, Tim, could I borrow your harmony sovereign and he says sure man and i i'm back up on stage i'm i'm tuning as i run up the stairs and uh from there i walk on stage and yeah it was pretty remarkable experience uh for a guy who'd played mostly to uh, audiences of maybe 300, you know, the, the spoonful, you got to remember, this wasn't the scale of rock and roll that everybody thinks of when they think of, you know, the 60s and rock and roll. Yeah, it really was a smaller scale operation. So when you suddenly have that many people in front of you, it is, it is startling. The thing that I rarely get around to, Robert, and I'll tell you, is that everybody that played there had had success in rooms with 40 people in the audience. And that's where you learn how to do what you do. And really, Woodstock was a very intimate half a million people. I can't quite describe how I, I never saw it happen again, but oh my God, they were quiet. I mean, who knows 
how to quiet a half a million people. So it was as much of a, of a, a, a remarkable experience for me as, as for everybody else that, that got the opportunity to play. Okay, you play. Yeah. When, when you're done, what kind of high do you have? Pretty, pretty strong. Uh, I, I think it'd be several days before I can get my head through the door. Uh, that was a remarkable feeling. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. How do you end up on the record and in the movie? Well, uh, that was just because they were recording and filming. So they had me. And uh, I I wasn't going to turn it down. I uh, felt like, okay, I went up once. I forgot a verse. But it wasn't terrible. And uh, the audience seemed to like it. I guess they'd be okay. Well, I had no idea, really, the, the scale of acceptance and, and what that movie became. Um, and one of the things, one of the outgrowths of that was that for another three years, I rarely played inside, one thing. And the other thing was that I played every one of those lonely-ass, wannabe, Woodstock uh, uh, we, we charge money kind of shows. Everybody had this, the same idea. Only this time we have an actual ticket booth and they go by the ticket booth. And, you know, so uh, I, I did. I played every one of them. That's where I got to know Joe uh, Cocker and, and a number of folks who were, you know, pretty, pretty much regulars uh, of, as a result of that movie. You became known as the tie-dye guy. Were you, I happy with, were you happy with that? For a while, I was happy. But uh, I, I, I actually can date it from a, uh, a television show I was watching where Cheech and Chong are the guests. And they come out and they sit down. And, and Cheech is sitting closest. And he's got a tie-dyed shirt on. And uh, the... The uh, announcer says, oh, that's just wonderful. He has a fake name. And, and tell me, uh, so uh, did you tie-dye that yourself? And he says, no, I, I threw up. <laughs> and that was when I knew, oops, it's the end of the tie-dye era. Now it's funny. And it wasn't long after that that I started wearing black clothes for a couple of years just to shake it off. Okay, you have a new album where a lot of your classic Love and Spoonful songs are recut. It's an interesting project because it's with Arlen Roth, the guitarist. A few of the songs are instrumentals. Tell us how this came together. Well, it came about completely... Uh, uh, as uh, Arlen's idea originally. Uh, he and I had known each other, uh, geez, we probably go back 35 years. Uh, and, you know, we would cross paths frequently because both of us were accompanists before we were, you know, the guy under the spotlight or whatever. And, and so, so we 
we had been friends a long time. And also we would cross paths. Uh, Woodstock has frequent uh, small events that are usually benefits or something. And, and it's a kind of a clutch where everybody gets together and plays. And I'd end up playing with Arlen fairly frequently. And so uh, came a day when I had been listening to Arlen's CDs that he had cut uh, things like acoustic Rolling Stones and um, instrumental Simon and Garfunkel. Of course, he's completely savvy because he'd played with both guys together and separately, so he has the background. And he says, so you never made one of these kind of records? And I said, no, I, I was always afraid to touch any of the material. Uh, uh, and he said, well, you know, we'd have half of the arrangements licked, was how he put it. <laughs> so uh, I, that just sort of started it off, uh, mostly in living rooms, and uh, we began playing the material, and one of the remarkable parts of it was that his knowledge of Zalman Yanovsky, I really hadn't, I really hadn't taken it in, but uh, it, it provided this wonderful framework, and we just started doing instrumental versions of tunes, uh, and in some cases they made it. <clears throat> in some cases, we'd say no, we can't touch the original, and in some cases, uh, it would become an instrumental that then we'd add vocals to and go, Hey, it's better with the vocals. Uh, let's, let's leave it that way. And suddenly we had the 14 or 15 tunes, uh, that it took. Now, part of our goal was not to go nuts and put a whole bunch of nonsense on it. Uh, because we had been getting this very good vibe of the two of us playing together, then we go to our separate studios and maybe add one other guy. And, and that would be the arrangement. Uh, so uh, with that as a framework, um, we got pretty close to the end and I had a couple of extra little things in my pocket uh, one of them was that I could call Maria Muldor to do a uh, to do a stories we could tell together, and uh, uh, a, a fairly remarkable thing that had happened uh, starting about five years before we started this project, which was that I got a call. No, I got an email from a guy who wanted to. Uh, play a little, what would we call it, a film of two young women doing Daydream. One guitar, one ukulele. It was beautiful. I And I wrote back and I said, this is sibling harmony. You can't imitate this. And, and I really went nuts on this email. The next email comes back from the Mona Lisa twins. Who the, that's who it is, and the twins are are saying, "Oh, we're so happy!" And could you maybe uh, 
be on our album? And I said, of course. They're they're uh, uh, and, uh, they're just uh, remarkable little Austrian people, and played and sang. And I ended up for uh, in uh, two different occasions playing harmonica on their records. And then they started a, a record where they were doing their own tunes. This was a first for them. And they uh, called me in on that. And this is all by remote control. I'm working from Woodstock, and they're in... Uh, 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 they're in England. So another half a year or so go by and they call again and say, now we have trouble figuring out how we're going to do a video without you. Uh, would you come to England and do a video with us? So I end up on a Icelandic flight to Manchester, and we end up in this 300-year-old bar doing a very cool, by the way, if you get a chance, go look, Mona Lisa Twins, uh, Waiting for the Waiter is the title of the tune, but they had me kind of be a like a kind of a bad guy or something, uh, and, and it was lovely fun. And uh, so then they were all ready to pay me. And I said, no, 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 wait. I said, I don't know what I'm doing next, but whatever it is, I'm going to draft you guys to do background harmonies. And so that was the agreement. And so so it is that on several tunes, uh, I sent uh, Arlen and my work off to Manchester by now, I think it was Wales. They, they, they're, they're a moving group. They, sure <laughs> uh, and, uh, they, uh, and it was a wonderful, uh, experience. They, you know, I, I'm still in touch and, uh, I'm sure we'll do something else. Okay. It's fascinating to me that both Maria and Jeff Moldauer on the album, they've been divorced 50 years. I know. I consider it one of my great, uh, great victories as the, because I'm, I'm the younger brother here. Uh, maybe not so much for Maria. We're about the same age, but Jeff's kind of, you know, he was in the real jug band and there were things about him. I was blatantly imitating him on Daydream, you know, trying to get that honk that he has in his voice. And, and so, uh, uh, and I, I think I called him first and then it just, cause he was living in the adjoining town at the time and very shortly thereafter maria who makes periodic trips to woodstock was nearby and i said hey come on over to chris anderson's studio and let's get this thing uh where you sing uh you know with me on stories we could tell so uh so it did I, they weren't in the studio at the same moment but they can be uh that era of where they were still angry at each other. I actually was, I lived through that. And, you know, it was, uh, it made me very sad for a couple of years, but they, they have managed to, to uh, get past that and, and enjoy each other's company and laugh at each other's foibles. And yeah, it's so that it, it had become nice. 
Okay, a couple of things wrapping up. Yeah. How do you how do you write songs? Do you wait for inspiration, or do you literally sit down like with a puzzle? How do you do it? Well, the puzzle part usually comes after a good idea, uh, because you know very often it will be something as simple as a title or a chord sequence. Uh, and maybe the chord sequence makes you feel a certain way. And so you might get a line or two out of that. Or your circumstances that you're living in might give you an idea. So it, it, it just, that's, that's the way it, it happens. Okay. A lot of these hits were in the 60s, which were over 50 years did you, this ever affect you financially, or have you been okay for these 50 years? Uh, I've had periods where I was struggling a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm making jokes about being wildly unpopular in the 90s. And uh, so I kind of went sideways, hooked up with a bunch of guys and made a jug band and sort of turned my fortunes around because I wasn't making money, but I was having so much fun playing with Jimmy Vivino and James Wormworth and Fritz Richmond and, oh man, Paul Rochelle and Annie Raines. I got to really play with some remarkable folks. And in fact, this very jug band, unfortunately, except for Fritz, who isn't with us, is going to reunite in a, a month or two and uh, have a little a little play at the Bearsville Theater. Wow, that's very cool. Now, you're an upbeat guy that I'm talking to you, but yeah. you've lived a long time. Have you always been an upbeat guy? Are you prone to depression? What's your mood like? Um, I, I think uh, I probably am a pretty upbeat guy, but I, I can get taken down. You know, there are times that... that uh, in my life that have been really depressing where, you know, Rolling Stone and the whole, uh, the whole world uh, of, uh, of reporters had a kind of a miss fire on what had happened with Zal and Steven. And yeah. Okay. So now they were finks, but everybody piled on to, uh, to that. Uh, and it was virtue signaling. Half of these reporters were so anxious to ally themselves with the pot smokers and not the guys who busted the guy. But what they nobody reported was the amount of effort that the band and the whole team put into getting this guy freed. And I, I, I won't go into it too elaborately, but... Unfortunately, the guy wanted to have his own lawyer who wanted to make pot legal in 1966 or whenever it was. And uh, so uh, he, he, he actually, I think he served some time and it was gruesome. And uh, 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 this is the selfish me, but I didn't want to be associated with this. I was not in, the, I wasn't even in the town. Understand this happened in San Francisco. I was in Los Los Angeles. So if you want to look for a depressing era for me, that was it. Because there was no there was no explaining. It just it looked bad no matter 
what attempt you made to explain, and it didn't help that there was all of this, what I describe in modern times, as virtue signaling. Uh, so many reporters were so anxious to vilify us and make sure that everybody knew that they, the reporter, were the cool guys. So that was painful. Okay, are you a social guy? You're living in Woodstock, relatively small town. I know when I've lived in small towns, you tend to know more people than the city. Do you connect with people from uh, your generation, the music, other famous musicians? What's your life like? Well, I am very lucky in that regard because there are wonderful venues and wonderful musicians in my town, and I do socialize with them when possible. Now, we have to kind of X out a year and a half here because nobody was allowed to do anything, but I don't know. Uh, uh, We were managing. Uh, I was wearing a mask and going over to Larry Campbell's house, and he had COVID, and uh, I was bringing him chicken soup. Uh, There were were funny things happening. Uh, Me and Happy Traum playing at 25 feet away because he just said, I can't stand it not playing with anybody. And we did get together and, and just have a, a fun little, little play. T- uh. Okay. You know, a lot of years have gone by, you're at uh, an elder age and a lot of this has been written. Are you comfortable with what's happened or would you like, will you wish you had another chance? You don't get a chance to do over in life, but, you know, looking back at this age, how do you feel about all of it? I was a very lucky guy, and I had a lot of fun. And there was involved in that fun a certain amount of tears and a certain amount of pain. But it was all part of the package, and you couldn't extract one from the other. Okay, And in the time you have left, which could be a minute or could be 20 years or 30 years, anything that you still want to do, want to accomplish? You know, I just still enjoy the same stuff I always did, which is playing with other musicians, uh, learning material that I didn't know, uh, finding out details of jug band tunes I've played for 50 years and suddenly I'm finding out, oh, that's that was a box factory outside of Memphis they're talking about or, you know, things like that. Little details. That That's what's fun. Okay, and you play the guitar every day? Uh, no, I don't think I do play every day. I, I, I end up uh, maybe every third day, uh, you know, I've it's kind of I, I get favorite guitars and so then i'm kind of concentrating on that instrument a little bit more so you know it's it's ongoing but i am i'm not a player unless there's another player or an audience i i'm not a guy who plays or or you know my grandchildren fine you know i'll play all day uh, but it, 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 it does need to be something, I think, uh, by myself, I'm, I'm more or less, maybe I'll get some crazy idea and, and, uh, see if I can develop it a little bit. So all day you read, you watch TV, you're in front of the computer. What's your average day looking like? 
Well, you know, dog walking saves me from just sitting in front of a computer all day, uh, and that that's a big thing. But also, you know, I have uh, I have nearby friends like Happy Traum and Cindy Cashdollar and uh, several luthiers, uh, Harvey Citron and Joe Vayette, who are really important friends to me, and I uh, really enjoy you know an occasional meal. <laughs> <laughs> where we go out and and take life in hand and go to a restaurant uh you know it's it's pretty pretty normal stuff yeah any uh, significant other any romance i have the same romance i had in 1970 and catherine sebastian has been a remarkable creature and uh and still a hottie so what, what, what are you going to do? Hey, listen, it's all good. John, this has been fantastic. You know, I think we got some of the history that people don't know. We still would need to delve more into your success in the 60s and what you've been doing for uh, from the 70s until this new album. But I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known. I think there's only so much time. So I want to thank you so much for doing this. It is a thrill for me because, you know, it's funny talking to you and you're saying, oh, you know, we were doing it. You know, we were living in Greenwich Village. Everybody knew each other. The gigs weren't that big. I don't think you have an idea how iconic these songs are. Like maybe Summer in the City, because it's constantly used. And they are, like you talk about the spoonful. You talk about doing things unique. Okay. No, they did not seem repetitious. And I cannot sit here and say, oh, this is like the spoonful. It's its own vertical. And therefore, it stands alone. It's not like, oh, it's part of the British invasion, whatever. And, you know, I, therefore, I was dying to talk to you. I mean, this stuff is iconic. <laughs> Robert, I love it when you say it. <laughs> Can I tell you? <laughs> okay, in any event, till next time, this is Bob Left Sex. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. 
or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.